Donya Dami, one of our producers at our station. There's the cultural aspect of marriage, which for a Western audience would mean, you know, weddings, rings, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. For me, it's a little different, but we'll get into that later. I'm Moroccan, so like Western, Eastern perception of marriage changes. She didn't stop there. But the second aspect of marriage is institutionalized marriage, which didn't always used to exist. Because um, the concept of that union was decentralized before the government took over. Each generation has a different relationship with love and marriage. For Donya, it's as simple as this. Well, to put it simply, the government needs children to survive. Their economy needs to survive by producing more workers. So the government was like, how do we produce more workers? They decided that the best way to have people make children was to put them in stable relationships. So they incentivized people to be in stable relationships by institutionalizing marriage. That's why you get tax benefits when you're coupled up with someone officially. That's why life is less of a nuisance when you take the last name of someone else. That's why socially, culturally, and institutionally, it's easier. And that is why it is so hard to divorce. But Donya's grievances are not misplaced. And this doesn't only tie to marriage. By examining the aspects of rings, romance, and regulations, she connects her own experiences to that of the commercialized aspect of marriage and how it deserves to be scrutinized. Today's episode, Buying with a Burden. Examining tradition while taking issue with the history that created it. First, we have Donya Dami explain the hidden contract lying underneath the pristine surface of the wedding industry. Next, our producer Will Tucker and the golden handcuffs behind Hawaii's golden fruit. I'm Stevie Georgiakakis, and this is Discourse. Here's Donya. I was 14 when I asked my mom why she married my dad. After five minutes of pensive thinking and a lot of awkward shifting around, she said, He's nice. Couldn't come up with another reason. I then asked her, Did he give you a ring? And her response? No. I just told him to give me money. Hearing your mom say something like that to you in your early teens is enlightening to say the least. Then you start to look at things differently, like how your mom and dad don't sleep in the same bed, or how their conversations seem super transactional, something about the kids or the doctors, the money. It sort of wrecked my personal connection to intimacy. Parents are the first model a kid has of a good relationship. That model was mine. What my mom was talking about is called a mehr, part of the Islamic contractual process called a nikah. It's basically a wedding dowry, almost. Mehrs date back to Prophet Muhammad Rasul Wasallam's time, back at the creation of Islam. 
Giving me money in exchange for marriage is a concept that's dated back to at least 610 CE. That is, if we're looking at the standard biblical calendar. The Islamic calendar, the Hijri, begins in 622 CE. That's our year zero. That was the year the Prophet's pilgrimage to Mecca and the establishment of the first Muslim community ever happened. Mahurus are at least 12 years older than an entire religion. Think about that. Which means you're probably thinking it's really archaic. If I'm right, the picture in your head is one where the father sells his daughter off to some old guy for 20 sheeps or a castle or whatever else. What makes a mahur different from a dowry or a bride price, though, is where the money's going. There is no father when it comes to a mahur. The bride gets the 50 sheeps or the castle or the unquantified sum of money my dad gave my mom 21 years ago when they got married. It's supposed to provide the bride in question another form of financial independence, something solely to her name. A barrier of autonomy in a vulnerable union of two people. Which explains a lot about my mother. She's very self-sufficient. She has an obsession with imparting that same self-sufficiency onto me. She tells me I can't have a partner till I graduate from college or get a job. And then as she says that, she's getting ready to go work the night shift at her job. At the hospital. For 12 hours. You get the picture. I don't think she had a big wedding. I don't even know if she had one at all. That's how little I hear about her life before, you know, kids. Before me. She definitely didn't have one of the big, gaudy ones I remember from my summer spent in Morocco as a kid, where the couple enters on a giant palanquin carried by uncles and cousins and all of the guy people in the family. It's a whole fair, and there's happy dancing, but it's clumsy, and barbukas are banging in the background, and people are messing up their freshly done henna done by the aunties and uncles. There's laughter, and joy, and humanity. But none of that stuff from my mother. And even if there was, I don't think I'd believe it. No crazy ceremony for my mom. Just a meher. One that happened to be in the vein of giving me money. No sheeps or castles required. And mehers don't even have to be any of that crazy stuff. Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, even said that an iron ring will do. Which sounds really similar to a Western tradition, doesn't it? You know, the rock that's plastered over every early to late 20s AFAB person's ad history? What white suburban mothers titter over when their kids come home for Thanksgiving? The piece of jewelry that goes for a thousand a carat, currently of Evelyn Good? Yeah, it's basically the same thing as a mehed. The diamond engagement ring. How else could two months' salary last forever? A diamond is forever De Beers. When you think of a traditional proposal, what comes to mind? Someone getting down on one knee, a few tearful regards, a loving embrace, and the presentation of a, usually, diamond ring. What better way to symbolize your everlasting love for someone than by giving them a physical placeholder of what they mean to you? 
That picture I just painted for you of a happy, engaged couple has lasted for less than a hundred years. In 1939, De Beers, a diamond company, launched a killer marketing campaign in the U.S. and China. It was to promote the image that a diamond lasts forever. That was the first time any jewelry company had tried to monopolize the wedding market. The first instance in history that wedding rings or diamonds or just luxury in essence was considered to be something not only reserved for the rich, but as a symbol of timeless love. And subhanallah did they do a good job of selling it. That campaign turned diamond rings from a wishful desire into a demand. Every billboard and TV, every radio and newspaper, the cultural capital that came with saying, look at what my fiance got me, became so powerful that the very concept of intimacy had become inextricably linked with wealth and status. Money and matchmaking became, or perhaps just appeared more apparent, as intertwined. A mandate. A command. So, what's the difference between your diamond and my mother's mahar? In essence, the same thing. A financial exchange. The forces driving the two things are different, I guess. Religion versus a cultural consciousness. But aren't those, in essence, also just as powerful? One's just as big as the other. When I think of them both in comparison, though, I get really angry. Really, really angry. I am indignant of the fact that dowries and mehers and in essence a lot of my culture is seen as backwards. When you're doing the exact same thing, you don't even see it as backwards consciously, but subconsciously. You think of the father and the sheeps and the castle when you think of a meher. You think of a lovely connection between two human beings when you think of a proposal, an engagement ring. And then I'm angry at the fact that no matter what you call it, it is fundamentally an economic exchange, a transaction in the midst of what is meant to be solely about love. What we've been told is only about the connection between two human beings. I don't want to live in a world where my mom talks about my own marriage prospects as a roster of men and what they have to offer me. I don't want to live in a dunya where a scheming jewelry company gets to tell me how and who to love for their own benefit. And an existence where one purpose claims the other as archaic and intrepid while presenting itself in the same blinding light. It feels unsatisfying. And under my justified anger, there is also a deep sadness. Sadness and confusion. And in this dunya of beautiful wedding vows and joy and closeness and heartbreak, how am I to believe that all we are is a complicated redaction of a business contract? I give Mahers three and a half stars. That was Donya Dami.
The Dole Pineapple Plantation in Hawaii, home to delicious fruit, a colonial legacy, and lots of nostalgic memories for Will Tucker and his family. But what happens when something that provides so much joy is built on values such as greed, capitalism, abused workers, and government corruption? What happens when this seemingly innocent plantation has a history so tainted with wrongdoings? For Will Tucker, this caused an internal debate. He tries to balance the appreciation for a place that holds great memories for his family, while still taking into account its horrible past. On the war between the past and the present. On the war between enjoyment and awareness. Here's Will Tucker. One of the world's largest mazes is in the Dole Pineapple Plantation on the island of Oahu in Hawaii. I went to the pineapple plantation and walked the maze on family vacation in sixth grade, clocking a time of an hour and a half getting through the maze. The maze was huge, but not huge enough to excuse that time. It's a typical outdoor maze, six sections surround an open sitting area with a floral arrangement shaped like a pineapple covering the ground. Hedges about eight feet high make up the walls. Each of the six sections had one hidden checkpoint. You would hole punch a card at each checkpoint to prove you actually got there. After punching all six holes, you could leave the maze. The pineapple plantation wasn't some industrial processing plant or a stretch of farmland. It was kind of like a pineapple-themed Disneyland. Besides the maze, there's a choo-choo train tour called the Pineapple Express and a short walking trail showcasing some of the exotic plants growing in the state of Hawaii. Before Hawaii was a state, it was an independent country, operating under a monarchy from 1810 to 1893. In 1819, the king and queen of Hawaii declared Christianity the country's official religion, bringing a wave of American missionaries to settle on the islands who weren't necessarily invited. The missionaries noticed that Hawaiian sugar, coffee, and pineapples were profitable trading goods. New American-run businesses started selling these back to America in addition to spreading Christianity bringing a wave of American entrepreneurs to the islands who, again, weren't necessarily invited. After the maze, we went for a ride on that train, the Pineapple Express. It took us out to see where the pineapples and bananas were really growing. They actually commissioned someone to write a two-minute song about the Pineapple Express. And this two-minute song was allegedly good enough to be looped across the Pineapple Express's entire 20-minute circuit. One thing we learned on the tour, the longer you let a pineapple sit out after it's picked, the less sweet it gets. After hearing that, my family saw our chance to buy the freshest pineapple we would ever eat, so we bought some, along with Dole Whip, which was like Dole Fruit Company's pineapple soft serve. They were the two best things you'll ever eat. Dole Whip had an impressively consistent texture. The tartness of the pineapple was the star, and there was a hint of vanilla in the aftertaste. The pineapple itself, as anticipated, was the freshest, sweetest, juiciest fruit you will ever have. My siblings have a very mild allergy to pineapple, but they voluntarily gave themselves an allergic reaction in order to try the Dole Whip and pineapple. They say it was worth it. The American entrepreneurs and priests who converted themselves to entrepreneurs 
quickly gained in power after landing on the islands. Their trade with America became the driving force behind the Hawaiian economy, but this only really benefited the land-owning, plantation-owning Americans, not the native Hawaiians, who ended up working for them. A quick word on the demographic makeup of Hawaii at the time. Captain James Cook of Great Britain landed on Hawaii in 1788, bringing smallpox with him. The native population dropped from 300,000 pre-Captain Cook to 70,000 by the time the American entrepreneurs got to Hawaii. The Hawaiian monarchy, more than anything else, wanted to be taken seriously by major world powers. The American entrepreneurs presented an opportunity for Hawaii to make it on America's radar, so the Hawaiian monarchy encouraged native Hawaiians to work for the Americans and invited immigrant labor to the islands. The businesses were successful, so I guess Hawaii could be taken seriously on the world stage, but the Hawaiians and immigrants were also working in harsh plantation conditions for that to happen. In 1890, there were roughly 40,000 natives in Hawaii, 10,000 Americans, and 30,000 people of other races, mostly immigrant labor. In 1875, the U.S. and the Hawaiian monarchy struck a deal. The U.S. would remove a tax on sugar from Hawaii, so Hawaii could send the U.S. sugar for less money. In return, the Hawaiians let the U.S. build a base for their ever-expanding navy at Pearl Harbor, which we also visited on our trip. The day after we went to the Dole Pineapple Plantation, my family and I visited Iolani Palace, from which the Hawaiian monarchy ruled. We saw Queen Liliokalani's bedroom. There was some historical significance to the bedroom that we learned about on the tour. In 1893, a group of American entrepreneurs, soldiers at the new Pearl Harbor base, and, ironically, priests overthrew Queen Liliokalani's government. They felt like they helped Hawaii's economy with their business ventures, so it was only natural for them to take it a step further by actually running the country. Lilio Kalani was held prisoner in that bedroom for three years by the insurrectionists. The new government branded themselves as the Republic of Hawaii. Some Americans governing the Hawaiians didn't even speak Hawaiian. I went to the museum that contained all that information in sixth grade, so most, if not all of it, went over my head. I was bored by the museum not as cool as a giant pineapple maze or the Pineapple Express. Even if I did understand the palace-turned-museum, it wouldn't have stood out as much as the pineapple plantation. The only thing there was to do at the museum was to feel sorry, and that's no fun. Since a group of Americans overthrew the Hawaiian government, eyes turned towards Washington, D.C. The U.S. didn't recognize the new government's legitimacy and proved it by calling off that sugar discount for Pearl Harbor deal. This decision crippled the Hawaiian economy, and it also hurt the U.S.'s market share in the world sugar trade. However, if the U.S.'s goal was to punish the Americans who overthrew Hawaii, that plan backfired. The Americans, who had just gotten more power by overthrowing the Hawaiian government, still came out better than before. The Hawaiians, whose main source of income was working on pineapple and sugar plantations, a newly obsolete industry, lost their jobs. To make matters worse, the U.S. made Hawaii their territory in 1898. They missed the pineapple money, I guess. The future of Hawaiian society was up in the air before. No one really knew if the new Republic of Hawaii would stick. But having a country like America annex Hawaii cemented that future. More working on plantations, more of a decrease in the native Hawaiian population, and more American entrepreneurs coming to the islands.
One such entrepreneur was James Dole, namesake of Dole Fruit Company and Dole Pineapple Plantation and Dole Whip, that pineapple soft serve. James Dole rose to the top of the industry. He came up with a method of canning pineapple and applied assembly lines to the pineapple business. This won him the nickname Pineapple King. James Dole had no direct role in the overthrow or annexation of Hawaii, but he looked at the turmoil it created and saw dollar signs. Going to the Dole Pineapple Plantation was really fun. When I see a banana with a Dole sticker on it, though, I don't think about eating that fresh pineapple. I don't think about the colorful plants on the walking trail, the giant maze, or the fact that today Dole ranks among one of the world's most ethical companies. I think about the overthrow and annexation of Hawaii. I think about the Americans who decided to rule a country they had just moved to. typical response to discovering a company's dark history would be taking your business elsewhere, but I can't fault one of today's most ethical companies for something that happened over a century ago. Besides, it's not like their competition has a squeaky clean record either. Chiquita Banana pled guilty to aiding and abetting a terrorist organization in 2007, and the CIA overthrew the Guatemalan government in 1954 over the company that's now called Chiquita. Because I know these things, I can't think about anything else whenever I see a Chiquita or a Dole banana. Because you just learned, or were at least reminded of these things, maybe you'll think of this the next time you see a Chiquita or a Dole banana. That's what humans do, and I won't pretend to know why. It's probably the same reason why news anchors like to complain instead of compliment, one of the more noticeable symptoms of our condition. I'm not accepted from this because I just spent more of my time here complaining about the annexation of Hawaii than complimenting the people who came up with the Dole Pineapple Plantation on putting together an amazing experience. How far removed, though, can you get from some ethically iffy historical event before feeling guilty about having fun at the crime scene? We're living on land forcibly taken from Native Americans, but is that enough to stop us from having fun on American soil? If a 1954 coup and 2007 guilty plea to aiding a terrorist organization is enough to stop us from buying Chiquita bananas, is an 1893 coup and 1898 annexation enough to stop us from buying Dole bananas? Where is your line? Today's episode was narrated and written by Donya Dami and Will Tucker. Today's episode was produced by Stevie Georgiakakis, Roel Jimenez, Donya Dami, and Covid Odoard. Music provided to us by Blue Dot Session. Thank you for listening. <laughs>